Welcome to the Beyond Barriers podcast. If you're an ambitious woman who wants to dominate your career, then you are in the right place. This podcast is co-hosted by Nikki Barua, digital innovator, serial entrepreneur, author, and speaker. And Monica Marquez, ex-Googler, diversity expert, and senior corporate leader. From inspiring stories to cutting-edge strategies, you'll learn how to develop the skill set, mindset, and tool set to get future-ready fast and accelerate your success. Hi, I'm Monica Marquez, your host for today's episode. What would you do if you earned a seat at the table, but you struggled to belong or simply feel welcomed in the conversation? Recent research from the Center of Talent Innovation found that exclusion is a growing issue and that more than 40% of those surveyed feel isolated in the workplace. Now, imagine being the only one like you on a team or in a meeting and not feeling as though you belong, or worse, not being heard. In this episode, Melanie Parker, Chief Diversity Officer at Google, shares her career journey over the years as she learned to navigate the male-dominated corporate ladder, reclaim and step into her power, and become a passionate thought leader and an advocate for change. Melanie is an HR executive committed to innovative, relevant, and contemporary HR leadership. She is responsible for advancing Google's employee engagement strategy across diversity, equity, and inclusion. Additionally, Melanie serves as a Minority and Energy Initiative Champion for the Department of Energy. Prior to this role, she served as Vice President of Human Resources and Communications at Sandia National Laboratories and has a career spanning over 17 years in a variety of Lockheed Martin business areas, locations, and progressive leadership roles. Melanie received a BA in Mass Communications from Hampton University and an MA in Human Resources from Villanova University. She was named the 2016 HR Professional of the Year by the New Mexico Society of Human Resource Management and recognized with a Special Recognition Award in 2014 Women of Color STEM Awards, and in 2012 graduated from Lockheed Martin's Executive Assessment and Development Program. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all the resources referenced in this episode, including the best way to get in touch with Melanie. Welcome, Melanie. Thank you so much for taking the time to uh, be with us here on the Beyond Barriers podcast. I'm super excited to be uh, having an opportunity to have a conversation with you, just given um, our history, both of us working at Google and um, would love for you to share with our audience just a little bit about yourself, you know, who you are, your journey, and uh, what you've learned along the way. Yeah, well, first, thank you for having me. I've been super excited about joining you at Beyond Barriers. A little bit about myself. Um, so currently, and how we know each other is our work through Google, and I do serve as the Chief Diversity Officer at Google. Um, my journey along the way, I grew up in a small town in North Carolina, um, went to Hampton University, so go Pirates, <laughs> and really a toggled career um, between public relations, and working at a newspaper and then going into human resources uh, once I came back to work after having twins. Mm -hmm. So kind of found my way um, through seasons of life and through career and following my passion and my purpose um, along that way. Amazing. So 
you've had lots of successes in your life. Uh, tell me about a time where maybe you had a failure, something that was personally hard for you, um, and what helped you deal with it? You know, I found myself um, early in my career, I worked at my hometown newspaper, mm -hmm. and I worked in advertising. And actually, I just didn't like it very mm -hmm. much, but I felt guilty that I didn't like it because I had a job, I was a communications major at Hampton, and I didn't want to disappoint my parents. But yeah. it wasn't going well because I just didn't like it. And so um, we just decided, you know, to mutually part. And I remember it's really hard to come home and tell my dad in particular that I don't work there anymore. And he's like, you know, did they have air conditioning? Um, were you working outside? Did you get benefits? Like, what is happening? And he just didn't understand why would I give up my good paying job with benefits to really go find something that was a better fit for mm. me. And so that actually was a lot for me to process um, in my early 20s, um, mm. where you feel like you're met disappointing parents, but you also have to follow the path that's been charted for you. And so, you know, talking a little bit about that, of finding that clarity and, you know, gaining clarity on your strengths, kind of your career path, your purpose, um, what was the key for you in trying to do a little bit of that soul searching after you decided you knew what you didn't want? I did. Figure out what you wanted. You know, what I have found is I needed more experience. And so mm -hmm. kind of the way that I was raised, what well, I was actually raised in a predominantly black neighborhood. Mm. My neighborhood was filled with, we had just a mix. So from people who worked as domestic to teachers to, we had lawyers. So we had everything in between. My mother worked at the bank and then she went to work at the post office. My father worked in factories most of his life. So just a very solid working class neighborhood and the expectation was that you would go to college or you would go in the military. And people kind of didn't stray from that unless you had trade. And in high school, we did have vocation. But because I went to college, I knew that I was on a path. And so it was about how do you follow the path? And I felt like when companies were hiring me and really expressing that interest that I owed them, you know, that level of loyalty because they were granting it to me. And what I missed just in my immaturity was it's that two-way dialogue, right? And so mm -hmm. it's not just about like what the company is giving me, but what am I giving it and what am I getting back in return? But because of just that cultural history of you made it with the degree and the job with benefits, I didn't know that I should have expectations for more. And so I have three children and I'm so encouraged and challenged by them because they know there's more. And so there are things that I endured that they would never endure mm -hmm. because they recognize worth and value in a very different way. That's fantastic. And you, you know, we had an earlier discussion, you were talking about how, you know, the, the differences or the challenges of being first generation college, first generation corporate, and um, going into us, you know, going into 
a work environment that you probably don't have a lot of support in terms of other people being able to help you navigate it, support systems. And um, you mentioned on your, your interview with CNN that sponsorship and mentorship were key to your success over the, over the years. Um, how did you gain access to these influential leaders, especially, you know, being, you know, the, the first generation corporate and really trying to figure things out on your own? Um, how did you gain access to these mentorships and these sponsorships that helped you along the way? I have a very interesting and funny story about this. So <laughs> early in my career at Lockheed Martin, I was placed in a mentoring program. Mm -hmm. and so when they talked to me about the matching, they matched me with a black woman. And I said, oh, no, I don't want a black woman. I want a white man. And they said, excuse me? <laughs> and I said, I have access to black women, like, all day long. I don't want for access to uh -huh. strong and powerful black women who are more than willing to pour into me and to tell me what they think. But I really haven't had exposure to white males. And I think in order to grow, it would be really helpful if you could pair me with a white man. Mm. And it really threw them off their loop because their thought about mentoring uh -huh. at the time wasn't mature enough to see that mentoring should really add to something that you don't have. It's right. not just about what fits you, but what, what do you need to add and stretch and grow. So they actually did assign me to a white male and we had the best relationship and he always said it was reverse mentoring because mm -hmm. there was a lot that he got from me but what i learned from him was actually to be more assertive mm -hmm. never go into a room without taking a seat at the table mm -hmm. don't go in and sit at the back to be gentle and that i needed to articulate a point of view early on and just really to be more assertive and that was really important for me because culturally, that's not how I grew up. You know, I grew up in the church, have a very strong, you know, Christian faith and background that is more polite and respect looks very different um, than the way he was giving me coaching as well as just I was raised in the South. And mm -hmm. so just that Southern gentility and the grace mm -hmm. wouldn't naturally have me going in, taking my prominent seat at the table, right, picking right. up with my point of view, not quite the Southern charm I was raised with. So it was very instructive to me. And then I had another white male who I replaced in a role. And what he would do, we would go into the room and he would say, people would ask a question and they would say, Ken, what are your thoughts? And he said, Melanie's going to talk. And what he did, I never forgot it. And I try to do it for others always. Mm -hmm. He actually lended me his credibility. It would have mm -hmm. taken me a long time to like build that credibility. And certainly, sure, I could have done that. But look at the time gap. But because he said, Melanie will answer. And he never took it. He always gave it to me because he endorsed me. I was able to get that endorsement for others. And I think it's something that if we're not intentional about, we can miss it in the workplace. And that is something that actually can help overcome even unconscious bias that others have mm -hmm. and labels that people just unintentionally put based on stereotypes. So really helping people overcome that becomes important. 
That is fantastic, Melanie. I'm so glad you said that because so many of our, our you know, clients and the women that we work with always talk about, you know, yes, there is this point where there's not enough representation of women that, you know, women of color, women that look like us. Um, and I always do challenge them to say that, you know, and much like you, a lot of the opportunities and the doors that were opened for me were by male sponsors and yeah. mentors and so and by white senior women who did yeah. not look like me That's and right. so um, exactly what you're saying is that we you know we sometimes do ourselves a disservice like yes we do want that mentorship because they understand us there are some you know unspoken you know things that they know and can relate to but at the end of the day you also have to understand what is the definition of success at the organization you're at? And you have to learn from those people who have been successful. So it shouldn't matter, you know, that, right. you know, color, creed, you know, wherever they come from so that That's you right. can learn the success rules. I think it's right. And I think we can have more than one. So, yeah. you know, you can have that business mentor, but you can have others. My mother, I talked to my 82 year old mom every day. So she's one of my first calls in the morning. And I remember at Google, when I was initially on the stage to talk about our diversity annual report, mm -hmm. I told my mother one morning, I was driving into work and she said, what's wrong? And I said, people keep giving me words to say, and they're not my words. And I'm just trying to, you know, work my way through it because, you know, it's really important to me to have my own voice. And my mm -hmm. mother said, Melanie, when you were seven years old, you were the understudy in the play. And, you know, she got sick and you stepped in. And Mrs. Green said to you, that Melanie, she's a great speaker and she's going to be a great speaker. You were born to be a great speaker. You don't need anybody to give you words. You already know what to say. And the light right. that that gave me. I mean, one, she reminded me of who I was. She said, you were destined to do this. You've always done this. But she knew me and she knew how to encourage me. And that conversation just spurred me. Um, and that had a just a tremendous impact. And still people are quoting some of the things that just came out that day. Mm -hmm. That because of my mother, I was allowed to do it. And I tell you that story, Monica, because we need to make sure that we have a community of people in our lives because it is a fallacy that we go places alone so mm -hmm. although i might walk in a room and you might walk in a room and we might be the only one we come with others we always come with others and right. so we have to think about who is that community who has our back who has our front who has their hand on our back and make sure that we're really leveraging that because that's where our energy and mm -hmm. our inspiration is going to come from that's so beautiful. And I love that story because there is that level of, you know, there are going to be people in your, in your circle, like you said, who are your truth tellers, who are the people who ground you and bring you back when you get a little, yes. or you get a little, you know, just uh, uh, too big for your britches. Um, and so I think that's a beautiful thing where you do have that mix of people who are supporting you in various different ways, because it does take a village. Um, yeah. Absolutely. One of the other things you also mentioned um, in your in your interview was the importance of feeling a sense of belonging and feeling welcomed, right? You, you mentioned that, especially in your experiences of earning or being invited to the table, but you didn't always necessarily feel welcomed at the table. 
How did you get yeah. past that challenge? And how did you allow it to not stop you from taking up space and owning your space in those moments? So to quote Maxine Waters, reclaiming my time. <laughs> so, you know, that has become like a mantra for me. I loved when Maxine Waters said, I am reclaiming my time. And mm -hmm. as I grew older and um, more seasoned, I actually had to reclaim my time because when I sat at that table and I was invited to the table, but I knew I wasn't welcome because I wasn't participating in the activities that happened over the weekend that I wasn't invited to. You know? mm -hmm. So there were things that were happening that I couldn't participate in because I didn't have those same shared experiences. And I actually was reluctant because I didn't know, well, what are the right experiences that I should talk about you know, that we could all unify around. But one of the things that I found at the table that we don't talk about enough is that I would give an idea, somebody mm -hmm. would take my idea and they would repackage it. And mm -hmm. my younger self would let it go, but be disappointed. In my reclaimed time self, <laughs> I actually address it and I'll say, wow, I'm so glad you were able to repackage that for me in a way that we could all benefit. So thank you for restating that. Mm -hmm. um, and so I'm, it's a, a gentle way to kind of bring it back, but to put ownership where it lies. And the other way it shows up at the table is that I will say something and then someone will say, well, as Melanie said, I agree and I've been thinking about when in truth they weren't. They, it was a, it's another form to take your idea to package it and to own it. And so I have, you know, just much more confident and courageous about reclaiming those things, which really equals my personal power. And so if someone is taking my time, my words, and I got to expend my energy to reclaim it, mm -hmm. I'm really reclaiming my personal power. And mm -hmm. I think that's really important. And so what would I tell my daughter? What would I tell my twin sons? you know, is really to have courage of voice and not to let those things go because mm -hmm. it takes something away from you. If it doesn't do anything else for anybody at the table, it does something for you when you take ownership of your ideas. Mm -hmm. And, you know, just kind of digging a little deeper in that, what helped you find your voice? Because, you know, it's one of those things where I remember too, Junior, wanting to say something but not having the courage to say it and like you said, walking out of that room and kicking yourself and saying, oh, I should have said this or I should have said that. Or the worst feeling is that I should have said that and I didn't say it and someone else said it, right? That's and right. That's, that's a horrible feeling. Yes. That's right. That's right. So one, you know, self-talk. So, you know, I'll tell myself, like when my mom gave me that pep talk about my seven-year-old experience that I had long forgotten, uh -huh. I went into Google and I said, you got this. So I had to do that self-talk in my head. Mm -hmm. And our narrative self-track is really important because mm -hmm. a lot of times I found I was sitting at that table and I didn't feel worthy. And one of the things I personally have struggled with in my life is, am I enough? Like, am mm -hmm. I enough in this situation? Am I right. bringing the right skills, the right voice? Do people want to hear it from me? And so it goes back to like our feeling of self-worth our esteem and ego, and then that translates into what's the story that we're telling ourselves when we're sitting at the table? Because if you go to the table and you know that you're designed to be there, mm -hmm. that 
the conversation is enriched because you're in it. Right. How you show up is really different. It doesn't mean, though, Monica, that you, you take over the conversation. It means you speak when you have something valuable to say. So right. you're balancing your power so that it's effective. That's fantastic. And I think that's so important in terms of being able to, like you said, um, not feeling like you have to say something to say something, say something when it's important. Yeah. And and then being able to, um, you know, just be confident in what you're saying. And what what do you do sometimes where, like you, you mentioned some of the techniques that you use when you get, take an idea, you say, state an idea no one really does any, like no one reacts, then somebody else repackages it and then you reclaim it. What do you do though when um, you say something, you know, how do you stop yourself from the idea that you might present and they immediately address and say, no, that's not a good idea. How do you stop that from silencing you? Well, it, ha- it, it happens, right? Because if we think about diversity, equity, and inclusion, it's change management. I, I'm going leading towards a North Star, and I see my role as really a chief steward. It's a stewardship mm-hmm. responsibility where I'm shepherding, but we're shepherding towards a North Star. Right. And with that, that means we're going uphill. So I'm not going lateral. I'm not going down the hill. I'm going up. So right. I often have ideas that you know, don't see daylight, but mm-hmm. I focus on what is the greater goal, like what is really needed here. And then I try to go back and reverse engineer it. Like, what was it? Was it the way I packaged it? Was it just not a good idea? And I don't know, there's this simple thing that I personally do. We used to teach interviewing and it was called the STAR. Mm-hmm. So it was situation, task, action, result. And that's how we were guiding people to answer their interview question. Mm-hmm. Well, there's also something called STAR AR, where it's situation, task, action, result, alternative action, alternative result. And so mm-hmm. I actually go through that process. I'm a deep thinker. And so, you know, I'm a systems thinker. And I'm thinking about, well, this thing goes to that thing. And then down the road, this is going to happen. And I think about what would an alternative action have been? And sometimes I repackage it. Sometimes I just drop it and sometimes I modify it, but we have to analyze it to make sure one, we read the tea leaves, right? We had the right right. acumen. And sometimes the idea just isn't ready yet. Like sometimes it's a great idea, but the org might not be ready. And so, but we have to do that critical thinking and analysis to -hmm. get there. And often you know, like for me, where I, I want to just blurt it out. And so I'm like, yeah, I got the answer. Yay, call me, call me. And it's not the way to really do the work in the way that gets the best result. Mm-hmm. We really should be analyzing and thinking about it and pulling it through so that when it comes out, it is packaged in a way that it's going to get the attention that it deserves. And But the, the key, the key, Monica, you just mm-hmm. got to try it, like practice, have fun, early in career, mm-hmm. have as many experiences as you can. Don't just know what you like. What are the things you don't like? And so that will kind of like lead you there, but grab experiences. I love that. It's fantastic. And it may, it reminded me a little bit about almost kind of like your ideas, almost kind of like a product, right? People go through iterations. There's the prototype. And then there's the, at the very end, there's that end kind of product. So you have this idea, 
um, feedback may be no, not right now, or that's not going to work. And like you said, you, you put some more thought into it, you tweak it, and it morphs into something else that's even better. And I, and I think the, what you, the most important thing, like you said, is have fun with it and don't take it as, you know, it's, it's kind of like, you know, you're failing forward, right? So it is, it is. And one of the things that I love about Google is the culture is really a no fail postmortem. So it's okay to experiment and you can't get to high innovation without a high degree of experimentation, but a lot of experiments fail. And so as long as you're putting that idea forward and you're doing the appropriate postmortem, it's okay. Mm -hmm. Like that's a very freeing experience to work in that type of culture. That's fantastic. I'm going to shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about, I mean, you know, as we know, given this, you know, pandemic and this current environment where there's been so much, you know, just, um, I would say kind of chaos going on in the world around, you know, even Black Lives Matter and just all of the kind of, you know, ethnic and racial um, tensions going on with, with all of the hyper focus on Black and ethnic representation, many of our kind of black indigenous people of color and more specifically our women of color may feel like they're under the microscope while they're at work. Um, What advice would you share with this group to help them avoid any kind of undue stress or anxiety that they feel is placed on them or this additional burden? One, what I would, what I would say, and I, and I do say is take care of yourself from the inside out, like understand what's happening to you and for you, um, what we found in this moment of racial reckoning, syndemic, where you have multiple pandemics mm-hmm. happening at the same time, because COVID has a disproportionate impact on black and brown communities. Yes. And then it's not that race, you know, the racial um, inequities haven't existed. They're being filmed in a way that we can't overlook them anymore in the same way. But what that says is that, you know, black and brown people are in pain and some of it is current pain, but some of it is past pain and past experiences that have been triggered because of, you know, the current Mm -hmm. movement that we're in. And then what I'm seeing on the other side of that from the majority population is very strong allyship. What can I do? How can I show up? But those are very different extremes between the folks that are standing in pain and the folks that are leaning in. And long after the folks that are leaning in have figured out how to be an anti-racist, which is really to be an active ally, how to show up, you could still be in pain as a person of color and particularly as a woman of color because we know that the impact of caregiving and caretaking um, often that falls on women. And so really understanding like what's happening and getting the help that we need, including mental health support becomes really important and can help lift that burden of having to be all things. One of the things I was concerned with at Google when we extended our leave, so we um, were able to extend leave from six weeks of leave to 14 weeks of leave is that women of color wouldn't take advantage of that Mm -hmm. because they would be worried about my positioning because I started hearing that from women. Well, I need to take off. I don't know how that's going to be viewed. 
And mm-hmm. so um, we kind of went on this campaign and smaller communities to talk about mm-hmm. taking advantage of that. And so one is knowing what's happening. Two is communicating those concerns directly to your manager so that they understand what's happening for you. Right. And you put the conversation on the table and then talk concretely about what are the adjusted goals if necessary in this moment. That's mm-hmm. the other one. And then thirdly, what I would say is as we're all interacting virtually, be aware of your online presence because how mm-hmm. you show up in a conference room could be very different than how you're showing up on GBC. I mean, in some respects, it's an equal platform because everybody's on the same platform, but it doesn't mean that in-groups and out-groups aren't still showing up right, right. in a different way. So I think there's like a three-pronged approach here. And, you know, talking a little bit about that, how, you know, we as, you know, just women and, you know, even just, you know, women of color, even when we were kind of face to face in the kind of work environment live, you have sometimes challenges on building some powerful relationships or building those networks. Um, And now you have the compounding, you know, issue of now everything's virtual, right? And you aren't necessarily the proximity isn't necessarily there now. Um, what are some suggestions or what have you done to shift maybe the way that you are maintaining or, or even building new powerful relationships that are going to help you in the future? One of the things I started doing well with my team, I started holding like, I call it, it's cheeky. It's called Moments with Melanie. <laughs> and so this 30 minutes, I do it in a, a media-friendly time frame. You know, um, I do it across. Um, United States and APAC timeframes, but just a way to bring the team together. There's never an agenda. We just talk about whatever is prevalent in the day that people want to talk about, but mm-hmm. it's a way to like check in and not just have conversations about work and to do that check in personally. So mm-hmm. I've done that. The other thing I've done, I have more 15 minute meetings. So I actually schedule 15 minute just check in or tag up. And then I find I use ping or instant message more where I'm just checking in, like, how are you today? What's happening? Or I've been thinking about you. I wanted to know how you are. And so it's looking at how we communicate in a different way. Um, but really, I think where we have to start and what I'm personally finding, we always have to start with how are you? How's your family? How are people that you're caring for? before we do anything else, just because of the nature of what we're grappling with across the world. That's fantastic. And, you know, like you said, I mean, we, you're re, we're kind of just reinventing ways that we're communicating with people, um, you know, given the, you know, I mean, at the end of the day, crisis also creates opportunity, right? And these are new opportunities and ways to, um, to engage. What are the biggest opportunities you see for women of color as a result of, this crisis in terms of, you know, just all the forced dialogue now that that is happening. What are some of the biggest opportunities you see for people of color and women of color? I'm so excited by the moment that we're in. I mean, exhausted, but completely energized by just the opportunity in front of us to, you know, confront some derailers or barriers that have systemically been in place. And those are enforced by structures. So, you know, just taking a look at the structures that exist and where do we lead from our seats to address those. Mm-hmm. Um, and then being encouraged by what's happening 
all around us. Like my daughter and I, we were on the phone. We live in different cities, but we were on the phone while we watched Kamala Harris mm. the other night. And so when she talked about her HBCU and sorority heritage and, you know, gave shout out to her immigrant background, I almost cried when I saw her sister and her stepdaughter and her niece, you know, speaking in love. But, you know, my daughter's like, Mom, what's happening for you? And I was like, I'm just so overcome. And so I think, you know, just really, this is such a moment for women of color when we look not just at Kamala, but we look all across at the opportunities in front of us and how women are banding together. Um, so I love the support for black and brown communities and businesses. So if you think about when Michelle Obama spoke, mm -hmm. she had on a very simple, very elegant necklace that said vote. Well, the woman who owns that boutique is a black woman who I understood, like she sold out and had to like go negotiate with suppliers uh -huh. and other jewelry makers so she could replenish and people wanted what she had because it brought attention. And so, you know, what we're doing to give investment to mm -hmm. founders, to startups, to small businesses in a time when many are impacted by the impacts of COVID is critically important. So I think we should all reclaim our time. This is our time and let's go win. That's fantastic. So I have a question for you in, in thinking about if, if Melanie Parker had a magic wand, had no constraints, what would you do to increase kind of representation, like what we work so hard for in, you know, diversity, equity, and inclusion? Like what, what would you do if you had the magic wand? You know, if I had the magic wand, it would really be parity. So I actually, I, I'm a huge fan of operationalizing diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I talk more about equity than I do about equality because equity recognizes that not everybody starts at the same place. Mm. So we can't always get the results or the outcome that we need by providing, you know, an equal application. Sometimes we need to customize or tailor that so that people who are below the average can come up. And right. so it would really be that true reflection of society that would exist in all of the corporations, all of the businesses. And we would have that true um, parity of outcomes across education, across business, across community, because without that, um, mm -hmm. we fail. And it's really not like a single or even a collection of corporations. It's about the systems that underpin it. So mm -hmm. it's who is getting access to computing in their classroom, in their community, and who is able to have the advantage to go off to college, to get the right education? Does everybody have access to that? And it goes to like our healthcare system. So we need to start working together as a collective, but this is where representation matters. And so if we had um, representation at parity across all of these structures, we would see a huge difference. 
That's fantastic. And I, I am also a really big proponent on, on equity. But my, my question is, and sometimes where I get challenged is, um, what do you do when, you know, we're talking about equity and then people see the, okay, um, you know, this person's getting more, this person's getting less, and then the what about me-isms. How do you address the what about me-ism? You know, it, it happens a lot. You can't avoid it. You can't avoid, you know, that coming into any conversation. Like, mm-hmm. the what about me? Um, how I particularly address it is I always point that person back to either, like, what do you need? Like, what's the gap? Because the gap that I have, the gap that you have, and the gap that someone else has, like, it's all different. Because mm-hmm. we're all at different places at any moment in time. And so, like, what do you need? So I really try to go into more of a consultant mode about what's needed and then where do you want to go? What are you trying to get to? And how do we get there? And then once we understand what all those things might be, how do we prioritize it and put it in a way that it's achievable and attainable? And you you know enough about those steps to Mm -hmm. really get there. We have this very cool initiative at Google on my team. It's a retention team. And we actually provide retention support to underrepresented minority. And they do just that. I have an incredible leader, Rachel Spivey. Yes, uh, Rachel was on my team. I love oh, yes. Her. Rachel is amazing. So Rachel um, has incredible vision and insight. And she's built a team of retention specialists that when we have underrepresented minority Googlers that are about to walk out the door, they go in and they triage and they're like, what's happening? Sometimes mm-hmm. it's a lack of clarity of expectation. Sometimes it's like a wrong fit, but they're actually making big Google, small Google in a way that that Googler can digest what's happening. And we're making the resources available and bringing the resources from across all of Google to them mm-hmm. that they weren't able to navigate on their own, but they have a person who's navigating that on their behalf. And then we follow that Googler up. We don't just like, you don't just graduate from the program just because we kind of helped you navigate the problem. We stay with you. We stay with you. We watch what's happening within that next performance cycle. And we continue to do follow up from sometime after that. And at the end of last year, we had an 84% retention rate. At the end of Q1, we had an 88% rate. And so we're just in the process of increasing that program and bringing on, you know, more folks who can give that type of targeted bespoke mm-hmm. um, support because that's what's happening. Sometimes it just feels big. And how do we take that big and make it smaller and simpler? That is fantastic. I'm so excited to hear about that. The program was kind of in its infancy. The, I, we were ideating about that that program, and I'm, I'm, I'm so excited to hear that it's taken off and it's doing really, really well. One of the things it made me think of is that you mentioned it too in, in your conversation a little earlier, and you know our limited frame of reference of what success is or how we define success, right? You knew that success was, you know, just, you know, getting a degree and, you know, not knowing, you know, sometimes we don't know what's after that. For me, I remember growing up thinking that in order to be successful, you had to be a doctor, a lawyer, or a teacher. And that is how we define success because that's all we saw. Um, so tell me, you know, from what you've seen in successful leaders or success even at Google or just in corporation, 
Um, what can you share that are kind of common traits that you see in successful leaders who are aspiring to be maybe part of the C-suite someday? What are those success uh, strategies? You know, the first one that comes to mind it, from a leadership standpoint is leadership as a position of humility. I mean, leadership done well is servanthood. It's servant leadership. So I am a huge proponent of servant leadership where we recognize as leaders that we exist to serve others, to lift others, to provide development opportunities, to make sure that we're uniquely customizing what's needed. This week, I've been sitting down having career conversations about, like, what do you as the individual need? Where do you want to go? One team member, I said, you absolutely get kicked off my team. It's time for you to go fly somewhere else. And they're like, what? And I was like, yes, you need, you need to grow differently. And so, you know, that really is that position of humility and recognizing others as greater than yourself. And powerful leaders get that. And powerful leaders treat people as an asset rather than as an expense. And so they're looking at people around them as assets to be cared for, to be developed, to be treasured, not as an expense or expendable. And so that's number one. And the powerful um, leaders who really know how to set and cast a vision and then energize people to go towards that vision. Because often, if you think about the work that we both do in diversity, like it's a can be a long uphill climb. Right. But what are those successes along the way? How are we championing people so that they continue to feel encouraged in the bow? And so being able to um, encourage, motivate, which comes with recognizing and rewarding. And at Google, we're doing a lot of work around belonging. Well, belonging is interesting because we all have this human fear that we're not going to be included. So we all want to belong, but we do that naturally by clinging to who's most like us. And so then we're othering. So they're the other because they're not like us. Well, mm. really, we need to extend that definition of who's in our circle so that we don't have those in-groups and out-groups. And successful leaders they recognize the in-groups and the out-groups and they're pulling everybody in and they're creating like a platform where everybody can see themselves and mm -hmm. everybody feels welcomed like we talked about at the beginning. And so, but in order for people to belong, they need to feel seen, heard, supported, and valued. That's fantastic. I, I love the way that you kind of just summarized that. And I think that's perfect. Um, one more question I had in, in coming in an environment like Google where things are always iterating, you know, you think about the products and technologies always iterating. But I think the most important thing is how is the talent iterating? How are you as an employee iterating. So what are some of the things that you do to stay ahead of the curve so that you are constantly leveling up or kind of, you know, Melanie 2.0, 3.0, etc. <laughs> oh, yeah. So I will tell you, when I first joined Google, I was so excited by all of the classes. I took a sewing class. I took um, a class on coaching. I took like a meditation class. I just was so excited by the personal 
and professional growth that I tried everything out. I took a cooking class at work. I took <laughs> how to use like basic knife skills. It took home like cut up potatoes. And they're like, what? And I was like, oh, no, I did this at work today. And so, so, but what it means is that enriching ourselves, not just professionally, but personally, because who comes into the workplace is we're bringing ourselves like the gift to Google is the gift of myself. And mm -hmm. I need to be enriched, not just personally and professionally, but the total sum of that. And so, you know, some of the things I do, I actually do knit. I do. So I dabble in crochet. And uh -huh. so those are some of the things I do. Um, I walk, I have a dog that's one year old. And so I have the opportunity because he needs it to walk him like three times a day, take a longer walk in the morning. And so, and then I try to deliberately spend time with family and with friends and like have those deeper level connections. Now I'm on the phone a lot um, just because of like of COVID and being sheltered in place. And so that enriches just the total person of who I am and makes it a better person. I know it's different than what you thought. <laughs> no, that's <laughs> but it, But what it shows is that there is a, a growth mindset where you are just the continuous learner, right? You were just the professional learner, always learning, but it doesn't just mean that you have to focus on the technical skills. Right. Um, and, and to be quite honest, um, you know, I really feel that with the just digital disruption and, you know, we're going to be coexisting and we already are coexisting, right, with some sort like robots and things like that, the most important skill, set, skill sets are going to be the soft skills. Yeah. And how do, how do you still keep that human touch to, you know, the, all of those, you know, whether the systems, the processes, all those things that are going on. So I think you said it exactly is more of just that growth mindset that, you know, the curiosity for learning. And I love that, you know, you're going from cooking class to knife class to <laughs> you name it. That's right. It's, it's amazing though, how sometimes what you learn in this class is something that you can actually apply to, you know, you, you just sometimes learn these little things that you apply and you're like, oh my God, I learned this in the knife class, but you know, it's helping me with agility here. So um, I think it's fantastic. I love that, that idea. Oh, it's awesome. The other thing, Monica, that you're learning when you do it in the context of work, you're also getting to know other people. So mm -hmm. what a great way to like network, get to know people. You would never, people who I meet in these classes, I would probably not meet them in other circumstances. So it's just a, also a great way to like get out and get beyond yourself. That's fantastic. Well, in closing, I would, you know, what would you love to leave in terms of parting words to our listeners um, in, you know, just pearls of wisdom from, from Melanie? You know, the pearls of wisdom for me are really to thine own self be true you are enough lean into who you are and recognize what that is and how valuable you are to the rest of the world we need you that's fantastic thank you so much melanie for your time this was brilliant thank you thank you for listening to the beyond barriers podcast there are thousands of podcasts out there and we are so grateful that you've chosen to listen to ours if you enjoyed the show, please tell a friend about it and subscribe to get new episodes every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Visit IamBeyondBarriers.com where you'll find show notes and links to all resources for each show, including the best way to connect with our guests. See you next episode.
your impact as a change agent who ignites transformation in others, but you don't have a proven step-by-step -step method? Do you want to grow your visibility and influence as a thought leader to inspire others, but you don't know where to begin? The Beyond Barriers High Performance Executive Coach Certification is designed for experienced leaders who want to grow their impact and influence. Join this exclusive community of high achievers, advance your career as a leader, and experience the joy of helping others grow. Go to imbeyondbarriers.com and register for the webinar to learn more.